0: Welcome to Tailwinds, the Air and Space Operations Review podcast. I'm Dr. Laura Thurston Goodrow, and we are joined today by Lieutenant Colonel Dan Sanders, PhD, U.S. Space Force. Lieutenant Colonel Sanders is the author of Space Force Culture, a Dialogue of Competing Traditions in our Summer 2022 issue. He currently serves as the Deputy Director of Strategy and Plans for the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy. Welcome to Tailwinds, Dan.
1: Thanks, Laura. Um, Thanks for having me on. I just really want to commend all the great work that you're doing in the Air University journals. I know it's uh, just a ton of effort. So thanks for everything you do.
0: Oh, thanks. So um, to start with, tell us a bit more about your background and your interest in the subject of Space Force culture, as well as the reason Space Force leaders should focus on the subject of service culture. Now, you know, toward the end, we'll go into that too, but just for starters.
1: Sure. Well, I'm an activity Space Force officer um, currently in, in OSD, as you mentioned. I'm approaching 20 years in uniform and served a range of space operations assignments, uh, most of them in the Air Force, as it turns out. And, and that'll be relevant as I kind of go through my story here. But I was f- fortunate to have a few stops in PME along the way, some time there at Maxwell. And you know, as a major going through Air Command Staff College, I was struck by how much of the curriculum was dedicated to stories of airmen, you know, reading about Billy Mitchell and Hap Arnold and Heine Adderhold, John Boyd, Robin Olds, you know, the, the litany of characters that are kind of in that storied Air Force past. And, and really, you know, I loved that rich tradition, the tapestry of Air Force history, but it just, it struck me that we didn't talk a lot about space. I mean, in those days, there wasn't much space in the curriculum at all, let alone talking about space leaders and so that was kind of just in the, the back of my brain. You know, we read a little bit about Bernard Schriever probably, but as it relates to kind of a project I'm working on now, Dr. Arnold at National War College is putting together an edited volume tentatively called Stars in Space, Makers of the Modern Space Force, which, you know, is a kind of harkens back to Makers of the Modern Air Force and some of those, you know, previous edited volumes that talked about uh, some of the leaders that, that I was talking about. But I'm writing a chapter for that on Thomas S. Mormon, who, in my opinion, belongs on the the Mount Rushmore of Air Force leaders in space. But anyway, back to the topic at hand. After my time at ACSC, I went to SAS and wrote on uh, the Air Force narrative. And so this is really kind of my first exposure to looking at service culture. And I was exposed to people like Carl Bilder, who I think did a lot of really kind of the formative work on service cultures and Fast forward, through post-SAS, I had an opportunity to work on my Air University PhD, and, and about the time that I was getting serious on that, I was finishing up my my squadron command, and this is the same time that the Space Force is, is standing up, and just after U.S. Space Command, and so we're looking at how we would activate these units and what our organizational structure was going to look like for the Space Force. And I would hear our senior leaders talk about their vision for the Space Force and being a light lean and lethal agile organization and all those things and and i just really i was skeptical i began to question whether that was even possible you know through my 17 plus years of service at that point i had just not really seen the bureaucracy operate in those ways and so thinking back to kind of my previous work on on culture i i really just first sought to understand you know organizational culture and then specifically military culture and then well, what is our Space Force culture? And and so that's kind of how I got down this road of looking at Space Force culture.
0: Well, it manifests itself in, in a really insightful work, you know, your PhD and then and then the article outgrowth of that. I appreciate so, that. So moving on in your article then, you talk about the four distinct cultural eras of Space Force operations, engineers, operators, integrators, and warfighters, which are the roots of today's you know, Space Force. Can you tell us more about these distinct cultural periods in the service's history?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And let me start by saying, um, and I know as an academic yourself, this will probably resonate. But you know, I, I didn't start to write out a work of history necessarily. I yeah. and I know this is a common experience that you don't often finish where you start. But I, I really wanted to answer the question of like, what should the Space Force culture be? Or if we agree with General Raymond's assertion, or His idea that we need to have this space warfighting culture, then how could he or the Space Force leaders build the culture they, they were seeking or are seeking? What I found though was that, you know, organizational culture, you can't really start from scratch. And I think that, I mean, it's my belief that that's especially true in the Space Force where there's this long heritage of Air Force space operations. You know, most of the people that initially came into the Space Force came from Air Force space operations. Uh, and most you, of the units, most of the missions. Yeah, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say, and then, you know, I have, we have friends, I have friends who uh, have gone over from the Marine Corps, for example. And so you also have these small other service cultures coming into this, uh, the Space Force, which is really probably um, very different than the development of the other services over the years. It's really interesting.
1: It is. That's a question I've been asked before is, well, what is the impact going to be of these inner service transfers beyond the inner service from the Air Force, you know, like me? Honestly, I think it's probably going to take 10, 15 years to know the answer to that. I, I don't know that we're going to know right away. But in any event, I, I think as we look back over Air Force space operations history, it really started with engineers, you know, Bernard Schriever's Father of space operations by by most accounts. And I I think he's rightfully earned that that title. But you know, in the early 50s um, or the mid-50s, it was really technically minded Air Force people with engineering backgrounds sitting next to their partners from academia, from industry. So you you really have these technical experts in the room that are flying satellites, and often the people that are doing the work contributed to designing the satellites. And so it was a uh, it was high technical risk in those days. And so you'd often have issues with systems on orbit and they were having to figure that stuff out in real time. And it's really just incredible. You know, I, I tell some stories throughout my my dissertation to a lesser extent in the article about, you know, strapping antennas together during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it's just, it's really unreal what, what these guys were doing. And it's fascinating. So the coin of the realm for the engineers was really this technical competence. It was problem solving. Uh, they had a really a higher risk tolerance, perhaps than than you see in later space operations. And I think in some respects we've lost some of that. You see it replicated now in places like SpaceX, where they weren't afraid to fail, fail fast, and fail often. And that was that was really General Schriever's model in the beginning of trying to build a working working rockets and a working ICBM, but. Anyways, we get to the late 70s. Space is really contributing in ways that aren't just strategic anymore, contributing at the tactical and operational levels of war. Uh, Space systems are more mature, but they're spread out across a bunch of different organizations. They're in Aerospace Defense Command, they're in Systems Command, they're in STRATCOM, and senior Air Force leaders started to recognize that it wasn't a very effective way, just from a bureaucratic standpoint, to manage all of this, to compete for resources, for the Air Force to be the, you know, the leader in space, which is what you know, successive secretaries and chiefs of staff, all, you know, that was, that was the thing that they really wanted to achieve was to be the, you know, the executive agent for space. And, and so to do all of those things, they felt like they needed to kind of consolidate and it didn't happen overnight, but through the late seventies and early eighties, there was a series of studies by the air staff and general Mormon, who I mentioned earlier that I'm writing on right now, contributed to a lot of the thinking there. But there was this idea that if we build a space command and we consolidate some of these things, that one, we achieve that bureaucratic goal of being more effective in the resource fight within the Pentagon and just some of those very pragmatic things. But there was also a cultural element to it. And it won't surprise you that the Air Force has valued rated officers for as long as it's been in existence. And so as these senior leaders went to form Air Force Space Command, they tried to do it in their own image and to make it a kind of a rated model where get out from under the thumb of research and development where space operations has historically been and have R&D support the operator, the the person that was delivering the services and the capabilities. And so in some ways, it, it started to look like the SAC era Air Force, you know, where LeMay was really focused on a professional service, a uh, strict adherence to rules and procedures. And, you know, you have to be perfect in that strategic mission. And they accomplished a lot of those goals through the operators era, you know, from 1982 through, you know, through the Gulf War, which I'll, I'll get to in a minute. But one of the things that was lost in all of that was that space operators were not pilots, they weren't getting a year of pilot training under their belt. And so there was, you know, an effort to kind of build checklists and procedures, but it didn't look like flying, right? It was, it was people that didn't have nearly as much experience. And meanwhile, your engineers and the R&D community are in different places now, you know, by the time you get to the, the 90s. And so you don't have that deep technical expertise to rely on. So the operators become the dominant tradition and really in the Gulf War do a, you know, a fantastic job, all things considered taking these systems that were designed for really strategic purposes and bringing them to bear in a theater conflict. And so post Gulf War, you have General McPeak, the CSAP at the time, and he wants to bring Chuck Horner, you know, his lead warfighter into space command to really figure out how we can better integrate space operations and in, into the fight. And so this is kind of where the, the integrator period starts. And by the late 90s, you start to see the value of space command is it's less internally focused where people are rewarding on how well you've done on a written test or you know an evaluation, which was a lot of the focus of the operators modeled after how people performed in their flying roles and that sort of thing. By the time you get to the integrators, people are focused on really outward looking out of the command, experiences and exercises, supporting chaos, going to the Air Force Weapons School, all experiences that you can only get outside of Air Force Space Command. So it's an interesting twist. Meanwhile, somewhere in the 90s, we, we bring in missileers into the command with the intent of bringing someone that had a war fighting mission in, but also kind of had some space cognizance. And the idea that we could make our space operators more WARF-ID, you know, to to use uh, probably a poor turn of phrase there. But what happened was the ICBM operators were actually more rigid, more procedurally focused. And, and so it ended up having kind of the opposite effect of what was intended. But nevertheless, the integrators do a great job of integrating space forward into theaters. You start having more space officers that are deployed into the various Combined Air Operations Centers, you generate a lot of Air Force weapons officers. So by the time you get to Operation Enduring Freedom, Iraqi Freedom, I mean, it's seamless. And we get to this point where the American way of war is really dependent on space, whether it's through long haul communications, through precision guided munitions. I mean, everything depends on space in some form or fashion, but that also kind of creates a vulnerability. So in 2007, China tests their direct descent ASAT, and I lived through a lot of this. And so some of this is firsthand experience for me. But I think at the grassroots and really even at the senior level at that point, there was this recognition that we can't just assume that space is this peaceful, benign environment. We're going to have to start preparing for a contested domain. So it took seven or eight years until General Hyten, Commander of Space Command at the time, has a a conversation with Undersecretary Bob Work, who really encouraged him to take on this challenge of space warfighting. And so General Hyten kind of puts that into motion throughout Air Force Space Command. And you see a range of initiatives for training, focusing on the threat, on the adversary. And so this is really the pivot to this warfighting culture. And so what I concluded in the dissertation and in the the article is that, you know, this is really kind of, it's still aspirational, right? It's like people thinking about air power theory in a way in, you know, 1905 and 1910. And so it's not to say that there is no combat history for the Space Force, but most of it's been from an integration focus and less of a in domain how to protect and defend our assets and and that sort of stuff. So a lot of the thinking that's going on right now is kind of theoretical. So we're trying to build this warfighter culture without the combat history that the Air Force had in 1947, you know, where two and a half million people had served in the Army Air Forces and, you know, you had tens of thousands of airmen die and, and all the contributions to you know the war in Europe and Africa and the the Med and all of that stuff. And so we just don't have that rich combat history, and yet we're trying to build a warfighter culture. And it's just, that's really the the tension that I think the, the service is up against. So Air Force Base Command worked mightily in those intervening years from 2015 to 2019 to communicate to the Department of the Air Force, to the Secretary, to Congress, that we are indeed doing something about this. We recognize it. We're building people that are focused on the threat. We're trying to make better operators, all of that. But then you get to kind of this policy window towards the 2018 and 19, where you have some bipartisan support in Congress. You've got a presidential administration that is really interested and focused on this idea of a space force. And so by 2019, you have a space command and a space force and the rest, they say, is, is history. So
0: at the end of the article, of course, we get to the the so what, right? The implications and recommendations that you have. So if you could talk about some of the implications of these, you've you've mentioned that a little bit, policy windows and and how the Space Force is kind of in that space where they're warfighters, you know, the it's a warfighting domain officially now. And now they're they've got some doctrine, but they're not warfighters yet, practically speaking, uh, in space. They're coming from other warfighting domains and other warfighting experiences. In the article in particular, as you discuss that, you reference Carl Boulder and you know his argument that the Air Force mistook the means of the air weapon for the ends of strategy. And you say, if anything, the Space Force is more susceptible to that mistake than was the Air Force. So I'm really curious about kind of teasing out a little bit more about that point you make, but more broadly, cover your recommendations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny that you pull that out because I, I wasn't going to go too academic or nerdy in here and cite people. That was the the one quote that I wanted to mention in here, though, because I just I feel strongly that as technologically focused as the Air Force was, the Space Force is more so. So when you think about it, part of I think what's hard about being a strategic communicator in the Space Force is it's not tangible. You can go to an air show. You can go to a flight line you can see an aircraft you can watch how these things perform and it's something you know it's visceral right when you see a plane fly over and you can hear a sonic boom or whatever and it, it's just hard to make that resonate with space and so so much of what we do is virtual and it's very highly technical for everyone in the space force you look at the way the air our the space force is constructed to rely on a lot of support services for the air force so you have people that are doing finance and all the other critical mission support functions. But on the Space Force side, everyone's technical to some degree or another, whether it is your acquirers, your operators, your intel people, your cyber folk, it's all just more technical. And so I really think that the Space Force is going to have to fight this urge to focus so much on the technology that we kind of miss the broader ends of the strategy. And so when you talk about kind of the implications of these four traditions that I lay out, I think in the coming years, you know, the engineer's who, by the way, make up almost half of the Space Force officer cadre. You know, there's the potential for them to have more influence, perhaps, than they did towards the end of space operations tenure in the Air Force because Space Force budgets are growing. We're buying a lot more capabilities, and we're also trying to figure out what this whole warfighting domain means. What sorts of things do we need? We have to build investments and the technologies systems have to be built around a strategy. And I think that if we're not careful, there's this potential for the means of the space weapon to be more important than the ends of the strategy if we're not careful about that. But there's also a policy hurdle here. And I kind of alluded to this earlier, but the United States and its history has really been ambivalent about this idea of space weapons and ASATs. And, you know, there was a time in the Soviets where we're both testing ASATs. And then in the 80s, you get Star Wars and the, you know, the F-15 ASAT test. But then for good reasons, with the end of the Cold War, there's not really a lot of reason to think about it much to invest in those sorts of capabilities. And so I think we're at this point now where our adversaries are not slowing down. I mean, there's all sorts of unclassified and open source reporting on this stuff that they're fielding capabilities that can threaten every orbital regime and all the national power that we derive from space, both economic and commercial. It's just woven into our way of life now, but it's also critical to the way that we fight wars, as I talked about earlier. And so there is this policy hurdle where, you know, we're going to have to come to terms with how we think about this as a country and where the administration, you know, how they want to approach this idea of a space war fighting domain. So back to, you know, kind of the, the four competing traditions, the generation of senior field grade officers and general officers in the Space Force today have witnessed in large part the operators, integrators, and the warfighters. I mean, I've I've seen all in my career and people senior to me certainly have, have seen all of those. I still think the operator tradition holds a lot of kind of sway. I mean, it's the undercurrent to all the other traditions because it's just kind of the default position. And so I think there's a watch item here that we tend to fall back on the things that we can measure and the things that we can measure are things like, you know, test scores and evaluation performance and the things that we value or that we say we value, like being innovative and risk taking and being light, lean and lethal and all those these things I'm mentioned earlier much harder to measure and so as you're selecting people for opportunities which lead to promotions that's a lot of how culture gets embedded in an organization well how do you measure something like being innovative and i'm just not sure we've come to terms with that or figured out how to how to do that better now there's lots of human capital work ongoing and and i'm probably not as close to that as as i could be but just to say that if we're not careful, we'll fall back into the things that are easy to measure. On the integrators, I would say that the work that the Space Force does is still really important to how the joint force fights. And a lot of those things are focused on fights much closer to the Earth's surface. So while you know the Space Force exists to provide freedom of action to, from, and through the domain and to protect and defend and all those things. We, we can't lose sight of the fact that the nation derives power from space, as I've said, and a lot of that is focused towards the earth. And so, you know, there's one of the old phrases that you would hear is space for space's sake. And we have to avoid that because just whether from a practical sense of inner service rivalry and budget fights and all of that. I mean, the Joint Force has been very supportive of the, the Space Force recently, but that's because they know how much space provides to the joint warfight. And so, if we get too focused on this space warfighting idea or this in domain idea, we perhaps lose sight of those broader contributions that got us to where space is so important today. On the warfighters, you know, I think internal to the service, really, I think we're in a different place than even when I started this work. I think most guardians have internalized this idea of why it's so important to protect all of that capability that I've alluded to a few times now. External to the service, I mean, I don't need to tell you that there are lots of memes and pop culture references, and not all of it is flattering to the Space Force. And so I think to the extent that Space Force leaders can really elaborate and make real that that there is a threat, that this is a contested domain, that there's a reason that you, in fact, need a Space Force. I think that'll just be really important. And for what it's worth, I mean, I get asked this question a lot since I've written this article on, you know, how I think things are going with Space Force culture, how I think about this warfighting idea. I mean, this stuff just doesn't happen overnight. And that's where I think a sense of history is really important. That A few years into the Air Force's history, I think we still had privates in the Air Force. We didn't have airmen. Our uniforms and all that stuff is going to come over time. This culture of instant gratification, you're not going to snap your fingers and have a Space Force culture overnight. And that's probably you know, the big takeaway from all of this is that we're still rooted in Air Force culture writ large, and then Air Force space operations culture. And all of this stuff that we're trying to do We can work towards, and I think there's plausible external circumstances that are going to help us drive towards that culture, but it's just not a thing that we can snap our fingers and and have.
0: Yes, and probably should take a long period of time to develop because then it has time to grow roots. You know, Something that happens overnight necessarily lasts not much longer than overnight. And your article really is a great foundation for someone who's interested in this and who is looking to that for change and also just for information for young new guardians. I I think it's broadly applicable to a lot of folks in the Space Force and outside the Space Force. So thank you. Well, Um, I appreciate that. Is there final closing thoughts? Anything else you'd like to add?
1: No, I just, I appreciate the opportunity. This is been a labor of love. I don't think I could have appreciated kind of the reaction I would have gotten when I wrote this article, but it, it's reached some fairly senior places in in the service, and I have people come up to me once a week on average. Someone will will raise it, and it's just it's really gratifying as you know you spend a lot of time working on something to know that someone has actually looked at a thing <laughs> that you've read. Um, yeah, but I so I guess I would say that if people are interested in this and want to reach out. I'm happy to. Have more conversations about it because I just I think it's really important, and I think there's still an opportunity to to get some of these things right that will have implications for decades potentially. And so I'm I'm always happy to talk about it.
0: Well, queries that come our way, we will definitely send them on to you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Tailwinds. We look forward to visiting in the future, and best wishes with your upcoming uh, chapter in the book.
1: Uh, appreciate it. Thanks, Laura.